All right, well now is a perfect time to grab your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, we have a pew Bible for you. And I say that because um, we're covering a really large passage, and I'm not going to read every verse in it. So um, page 603 on the pew Bible, Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 18. And we're going through 43, verse 21. But like I said, we're not going to read it all up front. Um, we're going to read parts as we go along. So let me pray. Father, our lives are bare before you, and we need this. We need you to search us. We need you to lay claim to our very lives that we may be reminded that we are not our own. We've been bought at a price, and we belong to Christ to his kingdom, to his church. We belong to one another here in this room, and we are in need of much work. We need you to restore us and reform us, make us more like Christ. May our time in this word this morning help us towards that end as your spirit works in your people, we pray. Amen. My high school friend Chip, his dad gave him a kind of old, beat-up 1965 Mustang convertible when he was 14 years old. It was going to be a project for he and his dad to work on. Months and months passed with little progress. Oh, they had the car lifted up on blocks with the wheels off and the engine out, but it, it kind of just sat there. Chip would talk about all the parts that he had ordered and all the work that was gonna, he was going to do on this car. He just wait, it's going to be amazing. But the car just sat there and collected a nice thick layer of dust for years. But then one day Chip said, I've got something to show you. And there it was, this beautiful white GT350 convertible with a blue racing stripe right up the hood. It was glorious, amazing car. We had so much fun in that car. Did I mention his father was an attorney? Uh, we're thankful for that, too. Uh, to get from rundown to absolutely stunning requires a lot of work, hours of sanding and priming and painting and muffler work and wiring work, you name it. And so I was really so surprised. Four months ago, it was a junker. I'd seen it, and now it was stunning. How did this happen? Well, his dad dropped it off at a car restoration shop and paid quite a sum. <laughs> Four months later, there we go. Isaiah is showing us something similar in our text. The nation as a whole is up on blocks, so to speak. The wheels are off. The engine is out. But God is not done with them. God identifies with them. In, in verse 22, we read... Towards the end, it says, they have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Isaiah shows us this morning that God is 100% committed to restoring his people, to make them who they ought to be. We've seen a similar work of God in this back in the Protestant Reformation. The church lost its center, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. And they lost how God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The church needed a deep reformation, and God brought it about. Listen, God is committed to reforming his people. Why? 
because we need it, of course, and he loves us. Every human being is in need of God's reformation. None of us are the people that we know we ought to be, let alone the people God calls us to be. And if you are a Christian, know this, you are being reformed. But the problem is we can hinder God's work, can we not? We can easily think, God, enough with me. How about you work on someone else for a bit? But thankfully, listen, God's reformation of you is in his hand. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, if, if you belong to Christ, then God has you in his renovation garage. In love, he's reforming, remaking us, and he's reshaping us. And so the main proposition before us this morning is this. Because God, in love, reforms us, let us embrace this good work. That's what we'll look at. We'll look at it under four headings. The problem, the remedy, the reason, and then the outcome. First, the problem. This is the sad reality of God's people over the ages. Our problem is that our lives often bear little relation to God's purposes for us. As we saw last week, our tendency as Christians is to straddle the line between our own kingdoms and the kingdoms of Christ. And listen, every Christian, every Christian has experienced this problem. A perfect example is, of course, the disciple Peter. Remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples and he asked them, who do the people say that I am. And the disciples responded, uh, well, some think you're John the Baptist, um, others think you're Elijah or some other prophet. Then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A more true statement about Jesus and his divinity than you could ever say. And Jesus commended him on getting Jesus' identity right. And then immediately after that, Jesus went to tell his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and he would die and on the third day rise again. And do you remember what Peter did? He took Jesus aside and rebuked him and says, sorry, Lord, this must never happen. I've got different plans for my life with you in it. And to that, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then right after that, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All Christians have experienced this problem that Peter had. We can know and believe great truths about Christ, but our lives can bear little relation to his purpose for us and for this world. Can you see that at times in your life? Like Peter, our our problem is so deep that we need God to reform us. In fact, the problem is so bad that we're deaf and blind to our own need unless God does this work in us. This was true in Isaiah's day, verse 18 and 19. Now we get to turn into our text. Here we read, Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, that you may see. 
Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Well, if you're here last week, um, there was a different servant there. The servant here is no longer the messianic figure that we saw earlier in chapter 42. God is back to speaking of his own people as the servant of the Lord. And the problem is, they're deaf and blind to God and to God's purposes. And think this through, right? Listen, here's the reality. When we are deaf and when we are blind to God's purposes, then we're really no different than the unbelievers around us. True? We say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but we fail to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. And so what we, what we need, what do we need? We need God to work upon us. We need him to awaken us. We need him to transform us. And thankfully, God desires this good for us. Look at verse 21 in chapter 42. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. God's people then and God's people now have a life mission to show how wonderful God is, how wonderful God's ways are as we live according to his word, his law. Humanity as a whole has a glorious calling to reflect God's glory, to reflect his image on earth, but we have lost our way and we've abandoned our calling. But the point of this entire passage is that though God's people have a great problem, God has not abandoned them. Yes, they're in exile. Yes, God is disciplining them, but he's also working for their reformation. And we need this too. We need God to do whatever disciplining it takes to humble us, to cause us to cry out, I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to hear. Help me, Lord. And so the problem is that our lives bear little relation to God's purposes. But thankfully, our problem is where? It's in God's hand, which leads to our second point, the remedy. The big idea here with the remedy is that God's love triumphs over our failure. And it does so because our problem becomes God's problem. In chapter 43, verse 1 through 7, God says, I've got you. You know, why is it that problems are so, I don't know, problematic, (laughs) right? Problems are problems because we often just find ourselves in over our heads, or they just require so much attention, Sometimes I think problems are so problematic because we can be so alone in our problems, can we not? Single mothers, fathers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now what Isaiah wants us to see is that God takes our problems into his own hands. Notice the lovely words that begin in chapter 43. God says, but now. But now. These words should cause us to, 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 to sit on the edge of our seats. What does God have to say to us? Listen closely. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. 
and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But now. Notice, this is important, the reason for the but now has nothing to do with God's people finally getting their act together. But now God will help those who help themselves. No. This is grace upon grace for the needy, problematic people who are in far over their heads. They are passing through the turbulent waters and the fiery trials, but God says what? Fear not, I have redeemed you. You belong to me. You are mine. What a promise from God. And God wants us to see just how much he loves us. In the second half of verse 3, we see that, but let me read all of verse 3 in full. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. God is the Savior of his people. He pays our ransom. He provides a costly exchange for us. Now think this through. You're probably like, what does Egypt and Cush and Seba have to do with anything? Understand this, in Isaiah's day, no one, if you were to give them that offer, no one would trade all of Egypt, Cush, and Seba for this pitiful little group of people who don't even have a parcel of land to call their own. No one would make that trade. But God says, I will gladly do it. I will pay the ransom. I'll make the exchange. Of course, this makes me think of Jesus' words, for the Son of Man, that's what he called himself, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus exchanged his perfect, holy, sinless life for you, if you would but trust in him. He took your sin and your rebellion upon himself, and he gave you himself. You have been ransomed with the costliest of grace. Isaiah communicates this to us. Why? Because he wants us to know how much God loves us and how much he's committed to us. Look how he begins verse 4. Look, verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. You see what God is saying? I like how... Ray Ortland Jr. illuminates this. He says, God has given himself to us. He will go with us through affliction. We are precious to him. He loves us. In the cross of Christ, God proved that he would rather die than lose even one of us. It's amazing, right? But why? Because God has a purpose for us. Look at verses 5 through 7. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Listen, please don't be deaf or blind to this reality. Everyone who's been called by the name of the Lord has been created with a great purpose to display God's glory in our lives. We've been made in God's image 
to reflect God's glory into this world in places of work, in our marriages, in our families, as we relate to strangers. God is reforming us so that this is the people we would be. God is doing this good work, so let us welcome it with open arms. Do you see this in your own life, that, that God's purpose for reforming you is so that you would reflect his image in a more pure and holy and good way into this world? Do you know that? Can you see that? You know, the problem, I think, is that our hearts are so divided <laughs> that we're just in desperate need of what? Reformation. Understand this, Christian. You might not be fully committed to your reformation, but God is, which is all the more reason for us to be committed to seeing God restore us and renew us. Have your gracious way with us. That should be our cry. So we looked at the problem and the remedy. Now for the reason. We see the reason for God's reformation of his people in verses 10 and 11. There we read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I'm him. I'm the one. <laughs> I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. The other day, uh, I met a man who made a small fortune in advertising. He, his big client was uh, Purina. You know, they make dog food, puppy chow. His purpose in life, to which he and his huge team of created poured out and channeled all of their energy, was to advertise puppy chow, to witness to how wonderful it is and why you should buy it. He made a lot of money doing that. Not a bad gig. But we have a far greater calling. It's... God's, God's reason for reforming us is that we, would, that we would put God on display in our own lives. Instead of puppy child, we get to advertise, come and see your God. Taste and see that God is good. We are God's witnesses who get to point deaf and blind people to the only hope they have in life and death. There is no other Savior. There are no other gods. Add to this, Isaiah's point is that, you know, uh, there is no Savior besides the Lord. I am the Lord. There is none other. With regards to our Savior, Jesus, Jesus isn't a way to God or perhaps a best way to God. He's the only way. As Jesus told his disciple Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is either a lying fool or he's the only savior of the world. I think his bodily resurrection proves the latter. He is the savior. There is no other. And we get to witness this to a deaf and blind world. Think this through. We live in a world where people will pat you on the back if you tell them, you know, I'm on a spiritual journey. I'm trying to find God. They'll go, yeah, you're amazing. Wow, I commend you. But as soon as you tell them, guess what? I think I found God. They will ridicule you, right? But this is our calling to be witnesses. 
My friends, the reason why God has fixed our problem, the reason why he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear and lavished us with his love and mercy and grace is so that we would be witnesses to God's goodness and his glory. That we would be people who live as living advertisements to the greatness of God. So we looked at the problem, the remedy, and the reason now for the outcome. And what we see here is this. Because of who God is, our our Redeemer, who is personally responsible for us, God will deliver us all. Why is it important to be able to see that the love of God for us will deliver his people? Because it's true, right? We can find ourselves up to our neck in some sort of trial, walking through some fiery furnace, and we become all bent over hunched in with regards to our current circumstance. Maybe it's marriage troubles or wayward children, financial hardship, maybe dealing with a long physical illness. We can become so paralyzed by our circumstances that we lack proper perspective. God is telling his people in captivity, look up, I'm coming. Verse 14 and 15, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon, that's where they are in exile, and bring them all down as fugitives, the Babylonians, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God is saying here that I'm going to take those proud Babylonians, which now have you in captivity, and I'm going to make them to be the fugitives, they're going to flee for their very lives in the very ships that, they, that they're all puffed up right now in, with pride for owning and having. Again, why will God deliver his people? Are God's people so deserving of rescue? No. They deserve to be where they are. We've been keeping up with this story. For centuries, they had turned from God, and the the land that they lived in was so full of injustice, it grieved God's heart. He spat them out. God's people were far from deserving of this rescue. So why? Why the rescue? Because God is faithful. God forgets not his covenant promises to his people. Though they fail, he cannot. God says, I am your redeemer. I created you. You're mine. Let that sink in. Oh, that we would never lose sight of that. The outcome is in God's hands. His steadfast love is always upon his people. So God wants us to be able to lift up our heads and trust. He also wants us to expect the unexpected. Where do do we get this? Well, in verses 16 through 19, God mentions the Exodus, where God delivered his people out of bondage in the past in Egypt as Moses went in and delivered them out in a mighty way. But something different is going to happen, says God. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's the exodus. But then he says in verse 18, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? What's going on? Is God saying, forget about how I delivered you? No. The problem God is addressing is our human tendency to expect things to go as they've done before, for God to deliver us in the same way that he's always done or seems to have done. And so here God says, don't stick me in a box. I'm going to do a new thing, so be on the lookout. Don't go looking for someone like Moses to walk into Babylon doing a bunch of miracles, saying, let my people go. I'm going to deliver you differently, so be on the lookout. And of course, as we know, in history, God used King Cyrus of Persia to, to bring about the exodus of Babylon that the people longed for. But it was a new way, a different way. Oh, that God's people today would expect the unexpected from God, to not live with God in a predictable box of our past experiences. Let's not concentrate our attention on God's mercy towards us in the past and how they came upon us. No, we should always be on the lookout for some new exodus that he has for us. And so when you put these two parts together, that God wants us to look up to him in the midst of our trials and that God wants us to expect the unexpected from him, when we put these two together, you come to the conclusion that the outcome is in God's hands and it's good and glorious to cause us to lift our heads up with hope, to be on the lookout for God to act. You know, sometimes I think in my own life when I'm going through something, I'm like, I'm kind of skeptical. <laughs> You know, am I really looking for God to act? Or do I just, maybe I just want to feel sorry for myself. God wants us to make sure that he will meet us in our need. Not because we are deserving or you are deserving, but because you are his and he is your redeemer. God cannot not redeem you. He will not not restore you. And so God is saying to us, be on the lookout for my hand upon you. Expect me to act. But don't expect me to work how you anticipate me to work. The last nugget for us to ponder concerning the outcome that God delivers is the last part of verse 20 and verse 21. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God's people back then were in a wilderness of sorts, right? God's discipline can make you feel like you are in a wilderness of sorts. But it is there, it is there where God is able to satisfy your parched and thirsty soul. God allows his people to experience journeys into the wilderness so that he can bring, so that we can bring our parched lives to God, so that he alone can give us the refreshment our souls need. He has made us to be his chosen people so that we would hunger and thirst for God. And we would find our satisfaction in him. And therefore be a people who declare praise to God. 
before we come forward to celebrate the Lord's Supper at this table, take, the, take a moment to recognize the importance of God's reformation of you and his people, the church. Allow the body and blood of Christ to remind you of how big our problem is. But also, delight to see and hear that Jesus is God's perfect remedy for our problem. He is the only Savior that the world has, and he has come, and he's come for you. He has called us to himself, and more so, he has called us his very own. And as the Father sent the Son, so also Jesus sends us to be his witnesses of God's love in this deaf and blind world. It's hard work, but God meets us there, and he meets our needs, and he cares for us in the midst of our trials. He lifts our heads. He provides the spiritual water for our parched souls. And as this work is being done in us, God reforms us. And it doesn't just feel good. It is good. It is good. They have God's hands of reformation upon our lives. And so because God in love reforms us, let us embrace this good work. Let's pray. Father, I am a exceedingly deaf and blind man to my own needs. And I think I can extrapolate that out to these people that are gathered here today. We are deaf and blind, but we're thankful that by the work of the Spirit in us, your word rings true to us, and you lay us bare, not to leave us there, but so that you can take us somewhere closer into your grace. And so we, we believe what you say here in Isaiah is true, that you are our creator, our redeemer. We are in your hands, and you love us, and you are working on us, and we like that. Amen.